from Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 5. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. Please join with me in prayer. Before we do that, I say that quite a bit. Um, if you guys could bring my mic down, that would be helpful. Thank you. I say that quite a bit every Sunday. I say, please join with me in prayer. And I just want to encourage you to join when we pray, to pray while we're all praying together. I, I, I just want to call you to that because it's so easy for us, isn't it, to fall into the habits of what we say out loud and yet not give any substance or any thought to what we're actually doing. So please, please join with me as we together are asking God to come to place His benediction on this time with us, for us. Let's pray. Zephaniah 3, 17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness, and He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. So, Father, we ask you that that would be true for us today, that you would be in our midst, that your presence would come and you would truly abide, that your spirit would work among us, that you would soften our hearts towards the things of your spirit, that we would recognize our deep need for holiness in our walk and that you would give us the grace to put to death the sins of the flesh, and that you would call us to understand how to fight the Christian life. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, we have come now to the time of ordinary time in the church calendar, and you might notice that by the color of the pyramids. They are green, and the reason we use green during ordinary time is to communicate a sense of the change of season. God changes seasons, doesn't He? And the season that ordinary time normally marks in the Christian life is the application of the things of the, the Christian faith to our walk as Christians. And therefore, green is supposed to connote this idea of growth, uh, grass that grows tall, plants that grow tall, trees that grow tall. They become green and leafy. 
the, the verdant nature of spring has now burst forth into the heat of summer. If you have a backyard like mine, you, you, you know that there's something that happens when summer heat accelerates young spring growth. It, it causes things to just turn, turn up. You know, it causes things to explode and to take massive increases in volume and space. And, and the reason that this happens is because God is giving the world more light, more heat, more rain, and this is all a benefit to his green, verdant creation. And so, so in the time of ordinary time, we as a church look at how the things of the life of Christ map to the Christian walk. So we have been spending in Easter and Pentecost, we've been spending this time looking at the facts of Christ's life and understanding his person and his work, who he was and what he did, what he told us about the Father and how he modeled walking by the Spirit. And then routinely in the time of ordinary time, we turn our attention to the focus of the epistles because the epistles bring out and bring to bear what has happened in the life of Christ as an example for the Christian. And that's exactly what Paul does in this passage. And it's so helpful to us because we all need reminders of these things. As God's people, we have to be continually remembering that we are engaged, not just in some, some sort of skate through life, but we are actually engaged. Each one of us is engaged in a constant spiritual war, a battle between not only principalities and powers outside of ourselves, those exist, yes and amen, that's important, but it's not as important in the New Testament focus as the battle between the flesh and the spirit. Therefore, we likewise must recognize the possibility of straying from former blessedness. What happened, as we'll see in this Galatian letter, is Paul is writing to a church and he is telling them, you have strayed from your former blessed condition. This straying always leads to dangerous compromises in holiness. As we'll see in a few minutes, what the Galatian letter was doing is Paul was saying, you have erred in doctrine, you have erred at the core central thing of what it means to be a Christian, and now it has blossomed into a thousand horrible fruits of manifestly unrepentant sin in the Galatian church. Therefore, as Christians, just like the Galatians needed a reminder, we need reminders that God has called us to live in holiness. Holiness is not austerity and not having any fun and not doing something that we want to do. Holiness is communing with God throughout your entire life. Holiness is a blessed, glorious, profitable, praiseworthy state of living in which the things of God inform your mind, will, and emotions such that you are able to put to death the deeds of the flesh before you commit them by the promises of God and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, today I want to look at these five things. First, I want to look at Paul's letter to the Galatian Christians. Then I want to look at how he calls them in freedom to love other people. Then we'll look at how the spirit and the flesh are set against each other in a constant battle. And then finally, we'll look at the works of the flesh and then the, the fruit of the spirit, the deeds that the flesh brings out and the fruit that the Holy Spirit brings out. It's important to remember at the beginning when we think of what the book of Galatians is or the letter of the, to the Galatian church is, we have to remember it's an epistle. It is a letter that was written by an apostle to a Christian church. Paul is not writing to a group of unbelievers. He is not writing to people who he hopes to evangelize alone. He is writing a letter to a church and that church is under a great deception and is full of mixture. This group of Christians who he said were blessed, have imbibed in false doctrine. They've drank in poisonous false doctrine, and this, as I said, has bloomed into a thousand horrible rotten-on-the-branch fruits. This heresy, the Judaizing heresy, deserted Christ for a false gospel. Paul says, 
This is a false gospel. And then he says, not that there is another one. What he's saying by using the word false gospel is he's saying this is contrary to the gospel. It is an anti-gospel. It substitutes faith in Jesus Christ as the recognition of our fellowship with one another for the keeping of the Jewish ceremonial code. Essentially, what happened was some people had come and began preaching that these Hellenistic uh, Greek Christians need to keep the codes of the law of Moses. And they were preaching the necessity to receive in your flesh the mark of circumcision in order to be made righteous before God. In Galatians 2, 15 through 26, Paul teaches that those who are actually counted as righteous by God are not those who keep the law, who do externally the things of the law, but who do the central core thing of the law. What did Jesus say was necessary to do the works? It is to believe in him and the one whom he sent. That is to do the work of God. Therefore, that work of God is not a work properly considered. It's a pseudo-work in a sense. Yes, it is something we must individually do, but it's done on the basis of the announcement of what Christ has already done for us and the knowledge and invitation of complete freedom and a new empowerment to live as a redeemed new human. In Galatians 2, 15 through 16, Paul said, we ourselves, we the apostles, are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. And here's the key phrase, because by the works of the law, no one can be justified. The law was not given by God to justify anyone. God never intended for the law that came down through Moses at Mount Sinai and is encoded faithfully down to this day in the Pentateuch, the writings of Moses, God never intended for that to produce righteousness in anyone. Not a single person, New Testament, Old Testament, New Covenant, Old Covenant, however you want to think of the change in the administration between the covenants, no one has ever been justified by keeping the law. Paul, therefore, rebukes the Galatians for permitting this heresy. The error of the Galatians was not just that some of them began to believe this heresy. He actually rebukes them for tolerating the heresy. He rebukes them for allowing the heresy to continue to be taught in their midst. He labors in Galatians chapter 3 to show that the patriarchs of our faith namely Abraham and all those who come after him, were justified in the same manner that we are by trusting in the promises of God. God said to Abraham, through your descendants, all the nations, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. He counted, God counted the belief of Abraham trusting in God's word, God's speech, God's message, as righteousness on Abraham's behalf. God, in his mercy and patience, therefore, gave the law to Abraham's descendants, to the nation of Israel, not that they could come to him through the law, but that the law would show what sin actually is. And in God's proper timing, he actually manifested what Paul calls the hidden wisdom of God, kept secret from before the foundations of the world. That is, the true righteousness of God came when his son came to redeem those who are God's children. This is why it's so amazing what we profess as Christians when we come together and gather. That's why the songs that we sing and the creed that we affirm and recite and pronounce and profess is so important because it's telling the entire story of all of the world. All of history is wrapped up, Paul says, in the fullness of times in Galatians 4, 4 through 6. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, the pivotal moment in all of human history God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem all of those who were under the law, so we might receive adoption as sons. 
God did not just send Jesus to pay the penalty for sin and never have intended any of that penalty and that freedom actually applied to anyone. He was done, he, excuse me, he was sent forth into the world to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. He goes on in verse 6 of Galatians 4 to say, and because you, have, you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means that by faith you have been linked to the historic dealings of God, the historic sending of His promises, and the fulfilling of those promises in the person of Jesus Christ. And now by faith, when you hear His word proclaimed, you can be united to that story through the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit causing you to become a new person. And because you have become a new person, you have now been given a freedom that is radically different than what you had available to you before Christ. In fact, as he says in another letter to the Ephesians, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. It wasn't that you had a hard time believing in God's promises. You were unable to obey. You were captive to sin. But now, you who were trapped under the law have been set free. Because of this glorious news, Paul therefore reminds them that they had formerly received this message, but now they are beginning to stray. In Galatians 4.15, Paul asks the Galatians, in the midst of trying to wake them up from the spiritual slumber that had come over them, he says to them, what then has become of your blessedness? He warns them that these Judaizers who are coming into the church want to be seen as great, and they want to exclude the Gentiles so that they will be made much of. That these Judaizers are, are going to exclude the Gentiles so that the Judaizers can be seen as super and as the real people of God. And that the Gentiles must cow down to or submit to this additional external code. Why then, the question has to be asked, is if this is the focus of Paul, if he's working through understanding the promises of God and the Judaizing heresy, why then does he seemingly change the subject in the fifth chapter to talking about practical holiness issues? Remember the context. He's, he's outlining that there's this heresy of doctrine that they've begun to imbibe, and that they have fallen away from grace. But then in the fifth chapter, he turns his attention to how they're living. I think the answer is this, that by nature, a legalism, whatever form it takes, must always lead to unholy living because the legalistic heart is cut off from the Spirit of God. Paul is addressing the deeds of the flesh in this church because they were being manifested in the life of the church. I believe the Galatians would have recognized this when they received the letter. They would have awakened to, oh my goodness, everything in our church is going poorly. Our people are beginning to stray from holy living, and they began by Paul sending grace in the letter form to them to awaken them that they have strayed from their former blessedness. Therefore, Paul's desire is to deliver the Galatian Christians from thinking that righteousness consists in doing some of the right things, and they subtly began to believe it doesn't matter so much if you do some of the wrong things, because you, at least you're circumcised, and at least you attend synagogue, or you keep the external ceremonial code. Just as they had drifted in their theology Necessarily so, they drifted in their practice and in their way of life. And the reason this must be the case, as I have labored to show in, in message or sermon after sermon, is what we think, what we believe, and what we cherish will always become manifest. What we think about God, what we treasure in our heart, it will always become manifest. It will work its way out at your fingertips. Therefore, Paul reminds these Galatians that they were called by God in Christ for a freedom, not a freedom that can do anything at once, 
but a freedom that can stand firm and bold in the faith, knowing what God wants them to do in their life. Verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. He tells them to resist the Judaizing heresy and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. This freedom that we've been given in Christ is not a libertarian freedom. Why do I use that? I'm not talking about the political theory. I'm talking about the philosophy of libertarian ethics, the idea that we just have to do nothing bad to our neighbors, that that, that isn't actually the, the, the truth. It's not God's law. God's law doesn't say, don't destroy your neighbor. It says, love your neighbor. Libertarian freedom, this sort of idea that we can do anything we want, as long as it's not illegal from a governmental perspective, is not a Christian ethic. It's not a Christian way to live our lives. The freedom that we've been given through the gospel is actually not a freedom to do whatever we desire, but a freedom to actually be real humans, a freedom to be all that God intended when he made Adam. We have been restored in some great measure, not fully, but in some great measure to the original calling of what a human is supposed to be. Brothers and sisters, if you've come to Christ and you're a new creation, you're actually a human. You're what a real human is supposed to be. Now that we are no longer enslaved to sin and idolatries, we can actually begin to turn outside of ourselves and to begin to love our neighbors. And we can do it with pure motives. You see, the difference between a Christian work of mercy and all the other religious systems of this day, which admittedly do works of mercy and works of of social good, is we are doing them primarily because we are enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit to do those things, and because we are doing it for God's glory primarily and only secondarily to bless and love our neighbor. Christian freedom is what it means to be a real human. As Paul goes on to say in verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are are not consumed by one another. To love your neighbor as yourself is a paraphrase of all of the commands of the law. It's not a paraphrase of all the meaning of the law, but it is a paraphrase, a right paraphrase of all the commands in the law. This command calls you to recognize an obligation, a responsibility to consider what is in your neighbor's best interest and what's in your best interest. Loving your neighbor, therefore, is the fulfillment of God's law. How wonderful and helpful is this idea? You are not the director of your own life. You are not the single decider of what you are supposed to do as a Christian in your life. You are to fulfill God's law. God has a law. He is the lawgiver, and He gives His law so that we would understand what He's called us to do. As His creatures, we have an obligation to our Creator. It's not an optional reality, but it is the central reality for which we were saved. We were saved to be set apart for freedom so that we could love other people. Paul, therefore, warns them to take care that they don't ignore this command. If they do ignore it, they're going to become cannibalistic. They're going to turn on one another, and they're going to devour one another. Paul, therefore, warns that not loving and serving your neighbor will actually lead you to consume your neighbor for your own purposes. Do you get the picture? You're either going to serve your neighbor or you're going to take your neighbor and put it on your plate. You're either going to uphold your neighbor and you're going to love your neighbor or you're going to receive him as something to be taken, something to be consumed, something to serve yourself. Paul therefore teaches that they must watch over themselves. He shows them the nature of the daily battle that all Christians are engaged in. In verse 16, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, 
and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. What Paul says here is that there is a diametrical opposition between the Spirit and the flesh, that the flesh is warring against the Spirit, and the Spirit is warring against the flesh. This tells us that Christians actually have a flesh. Remember, he is writing to a Christian church. Admittedly, some in that church are not true Christians. Though the majority, I believe, Paul assumes, and we should assume, were Christians because he says, what has become of your former blessedness? Christians have a flesh. That flesh is called the old nature. That old nature is supposed to be considered as dead, and yet, mysteriously, we are told to kill it. Have you ever been reading the New Testament and seen these amazing commands to kill And they follow often the notion that the flesh or the old man, the old self, is already dead. It's a wonderful paradox of the Christian life. We hear verses like Romans 6, 11, So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Well, Paul, if I'm dead to sin, as you've written to the Roman church, I have to think of myself that way, sure, But I also know that you've written that I have to also be on guard. To the Colossian church in chapter 3, verse 5, he said to them, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. In the cross of Christ, I died. And in the cross of Christ, sin died in me. However, what the New Testament epistles teach us is that the old man wants to come back to life and is an active force in my life. The great formula that the reformers handed down was simultaneously just or justified righteous and a sinner. Simultaneously accepted by God and yet still remaining corruption indwells within us. So what what is it? Are we supposed to consider ourselves dead to sin or are we supposed to consider it something that has to be killed? Why is there a dichotomy The dichotomy is this, the the flesh, which is supposed to be crucified, attempts to rise up. It's like a zombie. Have you ever seen one of these zombie movies or shows? I don't particularly like them. I think they're helpful in one regard. It's a picture of what the flesh does in the Christian life. It's, It's clawing out of the grave, and it's trying to take over your life. And the flesh wants to put a stranglehold on the activity of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's madness. That's why I like the zombie imagery, because they're out of their minds. They're just these little zombies. That's what we, we talk about. In fact, in computers, when we have what's called a runaway process, we call them zombie processes, because they're, they're runaway. We, the computer doesn't know what it's doing. The process has lost all understanding of when to stop, and, and you have to kill them. That's the metaphor that the computer programs use to deal with zombie runaway programs. You have to kill the zombie process to get it to stop. I don't know if that helps anybody, but uh, the, the point is, are we supposed to kill it or is it already dead? The flesh is trying to overthrow the things of the spirit and the spirit therefore wants to destroy the things of the flesh. Paul therefore commands us to walk by the Spirit. The the opposition in the Christian life will never, the enmity between the flesh and the Spirit will not stop. It will never cease. The flesh will always want to come back into power, and you must put it to death daily. Paul therefore tells them to walk by the Spirit, and throughout the New Testament epistles, he gives us a very clear understanding of what walking by the Spirit is. I think this is the most clear definition of walking by the Spirit I could make. Walking by the Spirit is to live in such a way as to know God's Word and to subject your mind, will, and emotions, or you could also say your mind, will, and your affections to God's Word so as to be able to deny your fleshly natural impulses. So often, walking by the Spirit in the modern evangelical paradigm is truncated to this super small definition of what being a Christian actually looks like. 
It's truncated, it's reduced down to small devotional times and religious experiences and external things happening to us. Brothers and sisters, those are helpful and beneficial. The means of God's grace, the ordinary means of God's grace of attending worship, attending Lord's Day worship, taking communion, participating in the life of the church, all of those are wonderful things, but those are supposed to transform you such that you enculturate or incarnate those experiences and through God's Word to shape your life, to renew your mind, to change the way you think so that you can change the way that you will live. By this phrase, walking by the Spirit, Paul has in mind a step-by-step, moment-by-moment understanding of God's will such that the Holy Spirit can empower our will to resist evil desires. The notion, I believe, is this, that as a man meditates on the word of the Lord day and night, then he is like the tree that is planted by the rivers of waters. Because that word meditated on day and night gives him the spiritual resource, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to fight off the evil temptations and desires that arise from within himself. Verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Why here then does Paul say you are not under the law when he has been talking about the flesh and the Spirit? This is a perplexing phrase, isn't it? He's been talking about the things of the flesh and the Spirit and the war between the flesh and the Spirit. And the very next phrase he says is you are not under the law if you are walking by the Spirit. What does he mean? Does he mean that the law has nothing to say to me? No, but as he says to the Romans in Romans 7 verse 8, he says that sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandments, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. What he means by that is that without the law of God, we can't even see what actually is sinful in ourselves because the Proverbs teach us that the way of a man is right to him, but the Lord knows the heart or tries the heart. If, therefore, Paul says you are led by the Spirit, then sin can no longer take advantage through the law to produce all sorts of evil. He means that those who are under the law are not those to whom the law still speaks, but rather those who are trapped under the law so as to be unable to fulfill its essence and its purpose. What he means there is that Christ, as he said in Galatians 4, came and was born of a woman, born under the law, under the authority of the law, to redeem all those who were trapped under the law. And therefore, in the very next chapter, he says, if you're led by the Spirit, then you're not still trapped under the law because sin cannot take advantage of the law to produce in you more sinfulness. As he's arguing in Romans 7 is that sin points out the law of God, and because sin is so sinful, it distorts our wills to do the very thing that the will of God and the law of God tells us not to do. Therefore, Paul says, you are not under the law if you are walking by the Spirit, not because the law does not apply, but because the law cannot be abused by sin operating through your will any longer. Paul then turns, therefore, to describe these products of the flesh that become manifest. Verse 19, now the works of the flesh, the evidence of the flesh, or the works of the flesh, the deeds of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The works of the flesh, Paul says, don't stay hidden, but they become manifest through our lives. Paul, therefore, enumerates a number of these sins, and he somewhat groups them, but it's not an exhaustive list. He begins with the phrase sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality, essentially saying any form of sexual uncleanness, all of which are contrary to God's design. What Paul is referring to here does not include just actions alone, not just the things that we do with our body, but also the things that we do with our mind and with our hearts. 
These things include thoughts and actions as Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. There's a heresy running rampant in the church today, in the evangelical world. Not even just the the mainline Protestants or some other groups that have strayed away from the gospel, but there is a heresy running rampant in the evangelical church. And it claims that you can identify with and embrace a sinful passion of same-sex attraction and be a Christian. If you haven't heard this yet, you've been sleeping or you've had your head under a rock. This is a heresy rampant in the evangelical world today. It is asserting that we can identify with a passion, a fleshly desire that Paul says must be crucified, and yet those who assert that maintain that you can be a Christian. Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, as I mentioned just a minute ago, condemned looking with lustful intent upon a woman to whom you are not married as being adultery itself. And therefore, how much more if a natural desire aimed at someone to whom you are not married is sin, how much more is an unnatural desire aimed at someone to whom you cannot be married sin? Brothers and sisters, this is a Judaizing dangerous heresy. And it is a heresy which the evangelical world will battle for the next 40 years or the next generation. I'm not trying to prophesy a curse. I'm saying I'm looking at where the winds are going and the majority of the evangelical world does not understand the nature of sin well enough to battle that heresy and to protect her members because they're being deluded to believe that they can trust in circumcision and yet still have Christ. That they can trust in their identity as someone who is afflicted with a passion that must be killed, and yet say that they can claim and maintain and hold on to that passion. Paul then goes on to list idolatry and sorcery together, as they are also linked in their essence, just like sexual immorality and purity are linked. Men serve idols. The reason that men serve idols is that the idol is going to grant them some form of success or blessing in life. In the ancient world, There would be cults of fertility or cults of war. They would establish gods who would rule over the different domains of life, and they would offer up to these gods like fertility, war, commerce, perhaps seafaring, you know, going on a journey. And and they would offer up to these idols little offerings of food or gold or, you know, candles. And, And they would serve these idols hoping that by Worshiping the idol or worshiping that God through the idol, they would be blessed in some way in their life. Likewise, the ancients also committed secret practices, sorceries, often using drugs, believing that they could manipulate the spirits in order to bless them. Today, these practices are not just ancient things. These practices are alive and well, whether it's through overt overt paganism psychics, or just the common consultation of horoscopes. So many Christians have bought into the idea that they can divine some season of life or get some self-understanding by reading and maintaining connection with horoscopes and the phases of the heavenly beings. What did we say this morning in our call to worship and the way we sang? We said all of those things are supposed to give glory to God. And psychics and mediums and necromancers use these things, and they they write these little stories that encourage the flesh and build up the self, and these are called horoscopes. And they're trying to give, and they often sell these things, they're trying to give these people some sort of assurance of how they're living and that everything will work out and everything that they do will be blessed. Paul goes on to describe those things which destroy relationship and cause division. He lists them as enmity and strife and jealousy and fits of anger and rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. Not only do these destroy the community, but they also destroy us from the inside. Finally, Paul lists drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. The question has to be asked, does Paul mean that routinely getting drunk will keep me out of the kingdom of God? The answer, brothers and sisters, is yes. Routinely getting drunk will keep you out of the kingdom of God. Those who habitually, routinely get drunk are using their freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. The very phrase that he said in the first verse. 
While these things, all that we've listed, are common, some of these things are even shameful to name. We won't go into any detail of what he means, but perhaps the most sobering statement that Paul does as it's getting worse and worse through the letter is he says things like these. Time would fail for us to describe the horrors of our country and the horrors of the modern world in abortion and human trafficking, what our country maintained and tolerated for generations in the form of chattel slavery. All of these things are things like these. What Paul is saying is that sin is utterly sinful and it knows no bounds and it will pervert anything in God's creation in order to destroy God's image bearers. Paul then warns with absolutely no qualifications that those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The reason he does this is these things are not just arbitrarily done, but they are byproducts of unmortified sinful nature. The question we therefore have to ask is, what should I do if these things mark my life? Am I in danger of destruction? The first thing you ought to do if these things mark your life, remember I'm saying mark, not occasionally, not, not once every few years, not you stumbled into it and it was the first time and now, you're, now the enemy is wanting to destroy your confidence in the work of Christ. But if these things mark your life and you are afraid of what the Word says to you, the first thing you ought to do is you ought to recognize that the warnings in Scripture are God's means of waking those up who are dead in spirit. The warnings of God's Scripture against those who practice such things are a means of God's grace. In Ephesians 5.14, Paul, uh, quoting one of the prophets, he says, Arise, O sleeper, awake, and Christ will shine on you. God's warnings in Scripture are given to wake you up from your spiritual stupor. The second thing you ought to do is you ought to seriously recognize the utter shortness of your life and seriously consider the worth of your soul and the permanency of the eternal state. Finally, you should understand that the only way to destroy these things in your life is to kill them by taking hold of the promises of God by faith. As Paul says in Romans 14, 23, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. That is a harrowing verse because what it means is if I kill drunkenness in myself with resolve and a moral ambition to be seen as great or to, to just self-defeat that thing that's causing consequences in my life, then I have not mortified that sin. I've just changed that sin for the sin of pride and the sin of self. I must mortify, put to death these sins through the promises of God because whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. In all these things, draw near to Jesus Christ and He will save you. In Matthew 12, 20, it says, a bruised reed He will not break. Isn't that a wonderful promise? Do you ever feel like a bruised reed? A smoldering flax, He's not going to come and quench he will answer you if you cling to him and you cry to him and you beg him to awaken you from your spiritual stupor. Paul therefore continues by contrasting the fruit which the Spirit brings forth in our lives compared to the, the deeds of the flesh. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, uh, excuse me, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things, there is no law. Just like the deeds of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit do become evident through our actions over time. Praise be to God, there is no limit to any of these. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? There is no law against joyfulness. Amen. I, one of my favorite things as a dad, I, I, just, I have to tell you this. I've now begun to like work out by lifting my kids up over my head and my kids love it and they want me to never stop because there's no law against joy. God made us as spirit inhabited people 
to love these things, to love kindness, to love gentleness. All of these things are in accord with God's law. None of them are contrary to design, to his design. None of them are ever inappropriate. Paul then gives a most amazing qualifying test for those who are truly in Christ. You see, what the Word does here is it shows us the, the deeds of the flesh and then the evidence of the Holy Spirit. And then Paul gives the most amazing test, perhaps, in my opinion, scarier than the tests that are found in 1 John. Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Paul does not mean that if you claim to be a Christian that everything's fine. What he says is those who do belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Those who belong to Christ have crucified, not are going to eventually resolve to crucify the flesh one day. Now, to be sure, we do not see in our lives all things that need to be mortified at any given time. However, the question has to be asked because of the way Paul phrases it. If those who have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires belong to Christ, does the presence of the works of the flesh in my life mean that I do not belong to Christ? That is a most important question. If you have never wrestled with that question, praise be to God, you may have been spared from deep seasons of wallowing in sin and wrestling with assurance. When I read The Mortification of Sin in the Life of Believers by John Owen, I was convinced that I was not a Christian. And I do not mean that to say that I'm, I've achieved some sort of mark of holiness. I just mean to say it was the worst season of my life because God was putting His finger on unrepentant sin that I was harboring especially young men in our culture today, there are thousands of temptations externally outside of you trying to cause you to rise up in the passions of the flesh. Likewise, for you young women, there are thousands. All people have thousands of temptations externally that are trying to get you to live from the flesh. This is a most important question. The reason it is a most important question is because it is one of the primary means that the enemy will use to destroy your confidence in Christ. He will attempt to call into question your identity in Christ. But it must be asserted, Paul does not want to give false assurance. He wants to give a very clear, clear test. So the question again is, does the presence of the works of the flesh in my life mean that I do not belong to Christ because those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh? I believe that question can be answered if we ask another very important and helpful question. Why did Paul say the word crucified when he could have just used the word killed? Remember, put to death what is earthly within you? put off the old self. Here he uses the word crucified. He didn't say just the word killed. Paul wants us, as we read him, to connect the crucifixion of Christ to our mortification of the flesh. The crucifixion of Jesus was totally complete. He actually died. The man, Jesus Christ, was dead on the cross, and his body, his corpse, was removed from that cross and his corpse was placed in a tomb. He was fully dead. He stopped breathing. He stopped thinking. He stopped being alive. He was crucified. He was put to death in an extremely excruciating way, in a way that caused him to suffer. And, in, and at the end of that crucifixion, he was dead. And the point of tying it to the crucifixion is this. Without God raising Christ from the dead... And without Jesus taking up his life again, he would have remained dead. That's what putting to death something is. And Paul wants us to connect the crucifixion of Jesus Christ to the crucifixion of our old self, our flesh. The aim of Paul's warnings here is not to provide assurance to those to whom no assurance should be given, but rather the assurance of a Christian's walk comes with a defining mark 
of how Christians actually deal with sin. Christians do not make peace with their sin. Christians recognize through the conviction of the Holy Spirit the presence of their sin, and then when the flesh appears, when the works of the flesh appears, they make war against those sins. The point is, you don't crucify something you want to stay around. You crucify something that you want to get rid of. Again, think of Christ. The Jews and the Romans didn't want to deal with Jesus anymore. They wanted him gone. They wanted to get rid of the problem of this person claiming to be the Messiah. Therefore, Paul calls them to follow the Holy Spirit's leading and to keep up with the Spirit. He says in verse 25, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, my call to you this morning is to recognize the grave importance of letting the Holy Spirit bring conviction when you see the deeds of the flesh and by faith responding to the promises, the warnings, the promises, the prohibitions, the incentives of God's Word to make war on your sin. Therefore, as those who are called to walk by the Spirit, let us crucify the flesh and fulfill the law of loving our neighbors as ourselves. The Spirit, it is the Spirit who brings us life. It is the Holy Spirit who works out and brings about this growth and maturity and the the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. So let's follow Him with faith-filled obedience. Let's pray. So Father, we come as those who have the Holy Spirit, that you gave us the Spirit, that we might be able to cry, Abba, Father. We pray, Father, that you would give us an understanding of holiness that is joy-filled, that, is, that treasures the freedom that your Son purchased for us, that you would enable us to put to death that which is earthly within us, and that you would give us grace. Help us to crucify our old selves, and to allow your spirit to produce within us holy transformation. We ask these things for the honor of Jesus Christ, that his kingdom would be made more established in the earth through our lives, that we would become agents of your mercy to those around us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.